Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them and the inevitable and rapidly approaching end of the world. My name is Kit, or Yolo Birder if you know me from Twitter, and each week I am joined by a special guest who must choose five species of bird to protect as we hurtle headlong into the apocalypse in a handcart. Five species to protect and save, to nurture and love as they walk the flooded barren earth searching for meaning and a reason to go on. It's a right old laugh, and that's not all. They must choose their one bird to rule them all, their absolute favourite to go through the ropes and into the bird ring of destiny to face off against my peregrine falcon in the Golden Grenade's best bird showdown. My guest this week is Amy Jane Beer, a biologist, naturalist, writer, campaigner and mum based in North Yorkshire. She is a Guardian country diarist and columnist for British Wildlife and the author of assorted books on natural history. She's on the steering group for New Networks for Nature and is conservation advisor to Castle Howard Estate. She has two new books on the horizon, A Tree a Day being published this autumn and The Flow, A Return to the River, early next year. Amy, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hi, Kit. Not going to fight, are we? <laughs> <laughs> not, not for about half an hour, but we'll see. All right, okay. The okay. End. <laughs> so we last saw each other, I think, in York, didn't we, for the new networks for nature? Yeah, it was but, great yeah. to see you unmasked there. <laughs> I know, yeah. One of my coming out um, events, I think, around about that time. Um, but it seems like a long time ago. I, I, I can't imagine ever doing you know, being in a crowd or being in an audience again at the moment mm. seems so alien, doesn't it? It does. I was imagining being somewhere and dancing. When was the, I mean, okay, yeah, I do sometimes dance when I'm walking the dog and, <laughs> and in the kitchen, but the thought of being in a place with lots of people and, and, and dancing yeah. to music, that's going to be weird. I was thinking I, I probably will never go to the cinema ever again. You know, I, oh, I can't dear. imagine wanting to sit oh. next to a stranger. <laughs> You know, why would I want to sit next to somebody watching watching the telly? You know, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one day it might all I might get more relaxed about these things. Yeah. Um I mentioned in the introduction there that well, I think I might have understated your publication history, saying that you had written assorted books, where you've actually written well over 30 books, including an RSPB spotlight book on sparrows the A to Z of wildlife watching and books on reptiles and marine animals and chipmunks and all sorts of things. But it was the simply titled Mallard Ducks that caught my eye. (laughs) A whole book on this magnificent duck. I suspect you kept the misogyny and domestic violence to a minimum for younger readers, though, I'd imagine. I had to, yeah. That was a book for children. So, um, yeah, although it was a whole book, it was quite a small book. A bit like like Ladybird Books. Um, That was a series published over in the States. So, um, What's what's the word? There's a side word for um for when you murder your spouse, isn't there? <laughs> but anyway, yes. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't too much of that. So mallards are a water bird known for their love of ponds and sliced bread, but also a regular sight on the nation's rivers. Something that you're very passionate about. It goes back a long way to childhood, um, but it sort of came to its its peak, I guess, 17 or 18 years ago when I took up whitewater kayaking. Um, also around the time I met my husband and he introduced me to this crazy new sport, a new way of getting out into the outdoors. And for 10 years or so, that was that was pretty much what we did. That was what our weekends consisted of, going out and, and throwing ourselves down, down rapids and, and off waterfalls and, and coming back, in my case, generally black and blue. <laughs> from blue with cold but also black and blue with bruises because 
you know, it's a fairly roughy tufty kind of sport. And if you come out of your boat, you're going to get bashed, bashed around. Yeah. Uh, that happened to me quite a lot, but just utterly thrilling and, and as an opportunity to get into places that, you know, there was no other way to access. That was a that was a real thrill of it for me. And of course, there was the wildlife. I know it's a bit like being on on horseback when you're in a in a boat in a kayak. Wildlife doesn't seem to recognise you immediately as a threat in the same way that you do if you're just a human silhouette. So I got used to being close to to birds on the river um, through doing that. And um, as I've got older and wiser, I'm I'm doing a lot less of the of the, the kayaking, but but finding new ways to explore rivers because I. You know, when I stopped paddling, I, I missed them enormously. I just missed that environment. So, um, so yeah, a lot of my passion for rivers now is has kind of mutated into something that's not just about being on them. I, I spend more time by them and in them, swimming and diving down into them. Um, now, getting going under the water was the kind of the, the final barrier, if you like, to communing most fully and more fully with the with the amazing wildlife that is there on our rivers. Well, in the summer, when when things eased. I got a bit carried away and went paddleboarding on the tyne near me. Somebody I know took us out, got in the river, and within within minutes I'd seen a couple of kingfishers. Uh, there was even an otter in the river at the time, and it was just ridiculous, you know, being in the middle of a river and just the different sort of vantage point that you have and the ability to see things differently, you know, mm. stuff that I probably would have missed if I'd just been walking alongside it, you know. It was, yeah, it was... absolutely. Just on the river where I swim, just just, just down the lane, there's... um. You can you can float there on your on your back on a summer's evening and have the, the swallows and the house martins just sort of skimming over your head and, and dragonflies and that sort of thing. And they they, they sort of acknowledge you're there, but not in a way that it, it's you know, you're just another another creature on the river or, or of the river. Um and rather than being that that threatening presence that a human sometimes might might be. Um, I want to do that now. I've never done that before, floating in a river with, with Oh, do yeah. that. Oh, take a mask and snorkel and roll over, and, and then get if, if it's a, you know if it's a decent clean river, that's a whole other level. Of right, immersion. <laughs> I'm doing that definitely. So we better get on to business. As you know, this podcast imagines that you are Ellen Ripley, metaphorically going into cryo freeze to survive the end of the world, and you can take your five favourite bird species with you. And unsurprisingly, you've chosen a couple of river specialists here. Can you tell us about bird number one? Bird number one. I can. Um, but I'm going to start by saying this is a really, really cruel thing. I, I've agonised over this. And after I sent you that list of five, I kept thinking of more that I'd forgotten. I'm still feeling bad that I've left other birds I love out. But um, but anyway, I'm just going to stop whinging. <laughs> so bird number one is kingfisher. It's just in a complete league of its own as a as a as a bird, as a creature, as a as a as a spark of life. I, I always think of them as birds of, of four elements because they're they're born in the earth in this little hole in the bank. And then in their life, they become splitters of, of air with their flight and with that call that just carries so well. Then in, in water, they are utterly devastating from the perspective of a, of a stickleback or a little minnow or small fish ends up as breakfast, lunch or, or tea. And then it, the more you watch, the more, it, the more it becomes plainly obvious that these are, are not birds of flesh and blood and bone. They are, they are birds of fire. There is something burning inside them that makes them, them glow, that, that spark of electricity that you don't just see, you, you kind of feel it as a jolt in your heart when you see one. And so that is why they're on my list. Just It's like being administered a, a euphoria-inducing drug, seeing a kingfisher. 
And there's not many birds that can do that. Lapwings can do it for me, but they need to be en masse. You know, you need a, a big flock of lapwings and they can just make your heart explode. But a kingfisher can do it solo. Well, very, very good reasons. And and yeah, I think you're right. One of the reasons I set up this podcast is that we all have the birds that do it for us and they're different for everybody. But I've had jokey conversations on Twitter with people and people tell me birds, all birds are equal. They're all good as each other. It's like, no, no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> A lot of them are great, you know, a lot of them in the right time, the right moment. But a kingfisher is, you know, a bird that pretty much wherever you live now in Britain, you have a decent chance of seeing one if you you live near a river um, and there are fish in it, which although our rivers are declining again in quality, we had gone through in the recent decades a period of of significant improvement in the quality of rivers. And so um, and the return of kingfishers to to London, for example, was a a real sign of that. In the last few years, that has declined again, but um, but the kingfishers are still there, and, and and so more and more people are having a chance to have that moment. Yeah, there's always a chance you can see a kingfisher if you go to a river, isn't it? Yeah. In the same way that you've got a chance of getting a double yoga when you crack an egg. Yes, you know. <laughs> yes, but it's, it's, it's not a guarantee, but it's a good chance. Yeah, it, but it's unlikely, isn't it? it? You know, and so when it happens, it's like brilliant. I've got a double yoga. You know. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just, yes, it's a brilliant, brilliant feeling. And it, it changes your day, you know, completely. I've had, I've had, you know, I've written about having, you know, days where I'm a bit down, nothing's right. And, and just that one, you know, split second of, of joy from seeing a kingfisher can just, yeah, it is, it is like having a, having your heart restarted or something, just an electric jolt that, um, that sets you up for the rest of the day. I think the colour's got something to do with it as well, because it is like an electric, that streak down the yeah. back when it, the light catches it, when you, because that's the yeah. way you usually see it, isn't it? You might, obviously, if you're on the river, you might see them a bit more often perched than, than maybe most people, but you're, you're more than likely just going to see that that streak of, of them yes. going past. Yeah. Like, it's amazing how that colour sort of, although it is incredibly bright when they're perched, they can still be quite difficult to see. You know, I, I've seen them perched and you know, you're trying to point it out to someone and they can't see it and they can't see it. And then it flies and they go, oh, there it is. It's so even though they're that they're so bright, they can be surprisingly cryptic sometimes in amongst the kind of complicated background of you know yeah. riverside vegetation. Just like dabbled light through through leaves. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, they just come to life. And those, I mean, blue and orange. What what colours? <laughs> I know. For for a British bird, we don't often get to see um, that <laughs> kind of colour. Kingfisher blue is even a thing. You know, yes. isn't it? It's like a paint colour. They're absolutely beautiful birds and I love that thing that they do I, I saw I think it was on spring watch they're a bit like kestrels that can do that thing I'd, I've forgotten there's a sp- yes. scientific word where they can keep the head completely still yeah and the whole body's bobbing around on a, on yeah. a branch so yeah. the branch yeah. is moving but their head is just completely fixed on that stickleback they call that isolation isn't it? isolation of, of body parts where so dancers can do it where they can you know belly dance or hula hoop or whatever and keep the head still it's like their, their neck is made of a slinky or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're amazing birds the one downside I find is that photographers love them. Yeah, I know, what, I know what you mean. And there's a lot. Kingfish is one of those birds that you, people use these baited tanks, don't they, for for trying to get the perfect shot that they can line up and they know exactly where the bird's going to dive. And you know, that's that's not wildlife photography. No, or even like you know, sometimes you'll get one that's regular to a pond and in front of a hide, and they'll have a stick there and yes, um... with no fishing sign on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> incredibly that... naff. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's not the kingfisher for me. The, the kingfisher that, that is the bird is the one that comes unexpectedly over your shoulder and um, absolutely explodes down the river. So we'll move on to your second bird, which is another bird close to your heart and also your canoe. 
bird number two. Yes, another bird uh, of rivers. Now, I did see these birds an awful lot when I was canoeing. Um, it's the dipper, one of the most familiar birds on the river. They would be there perched on a rock um, as we went by um, and just standing out so well with that white breast and that, that motion that just seems designed to be noticed. And then there's no there's no kind of difficulty in picking out dipper when it's when it's there on its rock and it probably was the first bird you know even before before the kayaking that I I completely lost my heart to I remember reading about one um in Swallows and Amazons which is a series of books that I adored when I was growing up and in the first book there's a, a girl called Titty who's the one that sort of is very in tune with nature and, and very adventurous and she has this encounter with this smart little bird that comes and perches on a rock while she, and she's just lying there on her front looking at it and and it's bowing to her and she's thinking, what a polite little bird. And so she's curtsying back to it. And, you know, I'd, I'd never actually seen one at this point when I was reading reading those stories. But but I did probably when I was about 10, we started going on a series of holidays to North Devon. Before that, my dad had been in the army. So we travelled around. We lived in Germany and all our holidays had always been about coming home to visit grandmas and, and the like. So it wasn't until we came back to this country that we started having holidays that were more about just going somewhere new. And North Devon was was the somewhere new for, for me then. And we used to go to Watersmeet, which is down near Lynmouth um, on the East Lynn River. And that river was probably the first, the first river that really caught my imagination because it wasn't a big, wide expanse of water like the Thames or the Rhine. This was, this was a, you know, a sparkling, chattering river that ha- had a voice and, and this energy to it that just was, was magic to me. And then there was this bird. There was this dipper doing exactly what had been described by Arthur Ransom in, in Swallows and Amazons just sort of bobbing and bowing, dipping and, and, and calling so clearly you could hear its voice over the, over the sound of the water. And it would then do this ridiculous plunge into the water, disappear, and, and then pop back up again with something to eat. And it would do it again and again and again, just like it was performing for my sole pleasure. So that was amazing. They've just always been special birds to me for that reason. And then about three years ago, I was walking in the Dales, a Garsdale on a river called the Clough, and at my feet, was this beauty. So I reckon it had been dead. I call her a sheep. I call it a sheep. I've no way of knowing whether it is a female or, or a male. Was was lying there absolutely perfect. I mean, what it wasn't still warm, but it may as well have been. You know, the eyes were bright. It had clearly only been dead a matter of hours before I found it. So, you know, the initial reaction is, oh no, a dead dipper. And then the second reaction, almost a split second later, was, yes, a dead dipper. <laughs> Um, because I had this you know this awful awful kind of collector's urge to to just sort of I found this bird and I you know I'm never going to let it go when you pick up a bird one of the first things that strikes you is how light they are normally but with the dipper what struck me was oh it's not as light as I was expecting it's quite I mean it's quite a dumpy little bird I often say uh, uh, if I had a demon, it would be a dipper because we're both dumpy little birds um, who, like, who <laughs> yeah. like the water. But yeah, she she has you know a, a weight to her that was appreciable. Still, still lighter than a mammal would be of similar size, but there was a bit more heft to her, and that's because dippers have this. Uh, they don't have the same hollow bones that most most birds have. They need a bit, little bit more ballast to keep them under the water when they're diving. And when they're down there, they're looking for food, so they're looking mainly for the aquatic life stages, the the larvae of, of insects like caddisflies and stoneflies and dragonflies, that sort of thing. And also small fish. They can, they can catch small fish. But they dive down and they use the flow of the water. So they walk up the bed of the stream. So it needs to be fairly shallow water. 
and they've got these huge feet which they grapple with the, the stones to hold themselves down and they angle their wings so that they, they act like like hydrofoils and actually the flow of the water pushes them down to, to counteract this buoyancy which is their worst enemy when they're down there and then they use this beak probing beak to flip over stones and dig out whatever nymphs and larvae are, are there the gray birds i wish i had a dead dipper now I can't pass up on dead things. <laughs> this freezer's full of them. <laughs> I have ideas about getting various things stuffed, but she's the only one I've, I've had done so far. What else have you got in the freezer? Of birds, we have a house martin, a sparrowhawk, a whole nest of baby blue, baby blue tits um, from my sister's garden. We have a blackbird, and then we have assorted mammals. There's a stoat and an edible dormouse. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's quite a, quite a lot. <laughs> My husband went through fairly recently and reorganised the freezer so that there's a drawer of what, or a couple of drawers of wildlife. Um, so it's not all mixed in with the food. Oh, there's a tree sparrow in there as well. Oh, fantastic. I can't believe you've got two drawers full of... <laughs> one, day, one day when um, when I've got some spare cash, I'll get them all. I'll get them all stuffed. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I love dippers. They're, they're probably in my top 10 if not even higher than that. I don't know what it is. I, I don't have the, the sort of childhood connection that you do. I just, I love a bird with a bib. Um, bib and a cummerbund. Yeah, it's just, they just dress yeah. for dinner and I think it's, yeah. They're lush. And, and the fact that they walk underwater and, you, you know, like you say, when you watch them, these sort of especially fast flowing torrents and you see them going up and down and in and out mm. and stuff like that. And yeah, then, totally fearless. And the fact that they're, that they're the only aquatic songbird as well. Yes. And that song is great. That's another, you know, one of those songs that you hear over the sound of the river. Even when you're in the thick of a rapid, you can still hear. Yeah. Clear as a bell. It's a lovely song as well. Yeah. I, I think that if the the Kingfisher is the real sort of A-lister of the riverbank, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the, the Beyonce of the, <laughs> of the river, you know, it's all yeah. sort of spectacular and flashy. But the Dipper is, you know, more of a connoisseur's choice. I think it's a, it's a stunning little bird and... and I can't walk past one, you know, whenever I see one, I just always have to stop for a little while. And Well, they're always doing something interesting. It's just always worth spending time watching one. One of the uh, the books that I'm using a lot to research for talking to guests on this is Mark Cocker's Birds Britannica, which is fantastic. And I've never read the section on the Dipper, but what I've just read was that a local, well, Northumbrian wildlife artist called James Alder, he'd written about the Dipper, but he actually taught me art, wildlife art, when I was a kid. Oh, um, I won a competition, the Wildlife Trusts, but he'd, he'd watch dippers near him and the river had swelled above the level of the nest. And so to get into the nest, they had to actually go underwater mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the nest was up amongst back so into So they burrow the... upwards, a bit like, like yeah. water voles do. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, yeah. To, but yeah, we're, we're both dipper fans, clearly. So let's move on and tell me about your bird number three. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> bird number three is swift. And I know this is going to be popular with, with lots of people, but um, oh, <laughs> that moment when they first arrive and you've been longing for them for so long, I think maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that with, with all the migrant birds, they have that extra power over us, don't they? Where Which is that power to remind us how much we miss them when they're gone. So a bird that you can see all year round, you can love it, but you can't miss it in the same way that, that you do these, these migrants. So they have this psychological power over us. Not to mention with swifts, you know, all their completely crazy physiological prowess and and, and and physical abilities. I mean, you know, a bird that that fledges and then doesn't land for three years. I mean, 
it's crazy. Just, yeah, I mean, I, that's one of my favourite swift fact, and I, you know, that's the one I, I'll tell people at the drop of a hat, given any any opportunity. Like, do you know those baby swifts will fly for three years before they come back here, and and you know, no one believes it. They think you're you're a mad woman. It is. It's yeah. an, an an insane feat. And just just yeah, there's just the sheer joy. I mean the. The sound of them as well. They sound like they're absolutely loving life, don't they? Um, just, just sheer exuberant. No other bird makes a sound quite like that. It's um, a scream, isn't it? I... Yeah, scream if you want to go faster. Yeah, <laughs> and they do. I mean, you know, your, your peregrine's pretty quick, but a swift is nearly, you know, nearly as fast. Absolutely incredible. But, but also, it's a bittersweet love for the swift because of this fact that they. They're here for such a short time. So a bit like a bit like a cuckoo, I guess, you know, it's more intense, the relationship with the swift, because, you know, you've only got them for four months of the year or, or whatever. And also, I think because of the way the world is now, we when, when we're missing them and we're waiting for them to come back, it's that 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 longing for them is is made all the more powerful by the anxiety about will they come back this year or how many of them will there be this year? That's almost unbearable, particularly 2019 they were really really late coming last year and I was lying awake at night thinking where are they <laughs> um, you know and people were on Twitter as well you know people were commenting and you know, Swift are normally here by now and you know a week went by and another week went by and they were, they were certainly coming to this part of Yorkshire they were incredibly late um, and incredibly few in that year it, it did pick up to you know later in the summer but um, yeah that was horrible and I wrote about that, actually. I write country diaries for The Guardian. It's a column that's been going for more than 100 years in The Guardian um, every day, Monday to Saturday. And there's a team of about, I think there's about 20 of us that contribute these, these diary entries. Um, but this one was a, um, a trip to Suffolk. I'd been invited down to talk to the Suffolk Wildlife Trust. And while I was there, I had a couple of days. And I got in touch with Matt Gore, who's another, another writer. And so we had, a, we had a day out. We went to the coast. Um, and I, I didn't know Suffolk at all. So, um, so it was lovely to have Matt show me his patch. I mean, he took me to a place called Dunwich, which is on the coast. And all that's there now is a tiny little village. But Dunwich used to be this absolutely bustling um, medieval port, one of the principal port cities of, of Britain. And, um, and it's now gone. It's been taken by the sea, which is pause for thought. So I thought I'd write about it. The 14th century goth map of Great Britain, drawn east uppermost, looks like a pantomime dame's shoe with Scotland, a long toe, Wales and Cornwall forming an ornate block heel, and East Anglia and Kent, sort of ankle cuff. I've travelled from Yorkshire to Suffolk, cartographic left to right, to a place marked on the map by a cluster of red roofs and a spire indicating one of England's largest towns. But the port of Dunwich is long gone, its bustling harbour obliterated by storm surges and its affluent streets, its guild hall and fine churches lost to tide after insatiable tide. What remains is a row of well-tended cottages, pub, a shingle beach, and a still hungry latte-coloured sea sucking noisily at the pebbles. This high summer excursion with fellow writer Matt Gore was intended to be one of sultry air, dragonflies, a swim maybe. Instead we're buffeted past anglers huddled in tents back to the wind, each enthralled to his own tiny arc of horizon, tied by lines gleaming like spider silk. Out there, wraiths of drizzle dither, alternately harried and tarried by the wind, not yet part of the sea, nor still part of the sky. The beach seems to be scattered with dung, but the dark clods are peat from marshes inundated long ago, coughed up for a final touch of sunlight on their ancient fibres, 
marshes that remain are protected by a shingle bank, their pools still fresh for now and sentried with little egrets. Crossing them towards the woods and rounding a bend in the track, we're brought up short. Against the backdrop of heavy green, a swarm of midday bats is flickering. Blink. Not bats, but swifts. Oh God, in this year of so few, so many swifts. An aerial feeding frenzy. They're gorging on insects kettled by wet and wind on this one sheltered acre. Hawking, swerving, flick-flacking, turning almost upside down to flash with paler brown and circuiting so fast it seems genuinely impossible that they don't collide. It takes them only a few minutes to clean up and then the feathered tornado rises and expands, a few crossbow silhouettes slingshotting over our jaw-dropped heads. Seconds later, they're gone. Fantastic. You really captured that sort of fleeting. Sometimes when you see swifts like that, you know, you, you just see them for a short time and then you enjoy it. And then they're away screaming off to somewhere else. To, That's right. And, um, and particularly in that year when I, you know, I'd barely seen any to suddenly see this crowd of them. The relief was, was incredible. And in that place where, you know, I was just the sense of loss and the rising sea levels and the, the imminent loss of those marshes, which, you know, they're not going to last forever. It was all a bit much, really. And then the swifts were, were there and relaxed for a, a little while, at least. Until you anxiously wait for them to come back. <laughs> the next year, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same with swifts. And I think I think all birders are. Well, I mean, everybody's got this relationship with you know, the bird that they anticipate most and, and think about as this signalling spring for them, you know, whether it's mm. a wheat ear or a chiff chaff or a sand martin or, or whatever it might be. And then, yeah, well, I, I just have a little list, you know, you have one, the one comes and then, you, and then you're expecting the next one and the next one. Yeah. Um, like a, a register at school, <laughs> ticking right. them all off, ticking them all as present. Um, but it's really important. It's one of the ways of, of sort of marking time and season, isn't it? It's definitely it's, um, it's reassuring about your place in the world that the, the characters that you know and love are around you. And it doesn't definitely. matter if those characters are, are not human. They, they, they mean just as much. Definitely. I can totally relate to that. Swallows were the ones that the hirundine that seemed to be the one mm. that people put more importance on, you know, in terms of that. But I do seem that, that there's been a, a shift towards. Yeah, I think you're right. The, they definitely are more exciting birds, you know, for the reasons we've we've talked about. And I feel a little bit bad for the swallow because they're, they're, they're lovely birds as well. But Oh, they are absolutely beautiful. And, and you know, swifts are slightly odd looking yeah, birds up yeah. close, aren't they? I mean, they're, you know, that that huge mouth and well, swallow's got a big mouth as well. But um, yeah, um, but I don't know, swifts, just the way they let rip, I think, you know, we all need that, that, absolutely. Um, that absolutely. sort of recklessness that they seem to have. Moving on from the swift. Tell me about your fourth choice. Bird number four. I have gone for starling. And starlings are, you know, they've been so denigrated. Plenty of people that still tell you that they hate starlings. Cannot understand that. Very rarely see them around our house. We're about a mile out of the village. Um, and in the village, there's a there's a gang of them. And they're there all the time, all year round, on the, on the roof of the pub and the house next door to the pub. Um, and on the roof of the school and the tree next to the school. So I see, I see them every day on, as I walk through the village or ride through the village to pick up my son. And they're there just like a rabble, you know, just making making the most ridiculous um, array of, of noises. A bit like, you know, a bit like the, the rowdy people in the pub and the rowdy kids at the school. They just, the starlings join in with all of that. There's no decorum there. There's just sort of whistles and hoots and chatters and cracks and just crazy noises that they pick up from all over the place. So I think 
they remind me a lot of us. I think maybe that's why I like them so much. They have they have an exuberance and a and a and a delight in taking you by surprise by, by coming out with ridiculous noises. You know, the reversing the reversing beat and the, and <laughs> yeah. the car alarm and the beep beep of car yeah, alarms being car set. Alarm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all those those sounds that they that they mimic. They're, they're, they're cheeky and they're local. But then at this time of year, you also get this other side of them and this this potential to go and see um, murmuration. And if anyone you know. If you're ever needing an, an instant mood lift, then styling murmuration can probably do it more powerfully, possibly even more than seeing a kingfisher. Just the sheer grandeur of a spectacle like that, it's, it's enough to just make your chest explode. And if I was going to wax lyrical about them, which is what I'm here to do, isn't it? So I'm going to wax lyrical <laughs> about them. I'd say that the thing about starlings is that they they are all, you know, they're, they're, they're all wonderful as individuals. When you see them up close and you get a good view of that plumage in, in when they're in breeding condition and those colours that are so easy to miss, just glowing with these colours, like those cars have that awful paint job where you can see different colour, iridescent colours on. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. It's ridiculous on a car, but on a starling, oh my God, it looks good. It looks amazing. It's like the girl next door suddenly turning into an absolute stunner. You know, you have this sort <laughs> of, um, you look again at the bird that you thought you knew. But the other thing, when they get together and they perform these incredible murmurations in the same way that humans, that humans can, each individual human is, is unique and extraordinary. But when we get together and we collaborate, you know, that's when we can make really amazing things happen, astonishing things that might be considered impossible. Um, and so, yeah, they remind me that we're all better together, starlings and, and people. Murmurations are something else. I mean, you use the word spectacle there. It, it's it is spectacular and we don't have a regular sort of murmuration near us but every every few years there'll be a you know a roost nearby that will be let's go tonight go and see the starlings you know it's almost like going to a firework display isn't it it's yeah it is it is better. and fireworks yeah far better than than uh than real fireworks and it is a it is a multi-sensory thing as well it's not just a visual experience isn't it when you're there and you hear the sound of tens of thousands of pairs of wings i mean what a noise as well that sort of rushing sound is incredible uh, just yeah everything about it so we've got a few roosts that are worth a look the one i've seen this year was up near catterick and i was actually on my way back from scotland in um end of october um and it was one of those real kind of i'm driving but oh my god <laughs> um so um so we went up back up a few days later i think there's one in ripon as well that's doing doing well this year and potrick car yorkshire wildlife trust reserve is usually good i think it's a good thing because you know they've never always been loved starlings my favorite you you mentioned there about you know when you just want to tell somebody a cool fact about a swift and you'll know this the why starlings are in america so there might be oh, people yeah. listening to this who don't realize that story but it's a it's a brilliant story isn't it that in 1890 rather a guy called eugene shiflin uh, introduced starlings to america as part of a project to introduce all of the birds mentioned in the works of shakespeare to america so we just took a load of starlings and whacked them in central park 60 of them or something and then the following year another 40 and within 100 years there was millions yep similar story to sparrows but well they were introduced for more prosaic reasons to control a, a, a moth the capitalism of a moth that was um wrecking the trees in central park i think but yeah shakespeare's a better better reason <laughs> really isn't it rather than thinking we can control wildlife then well let's do it for art <laughs> yeah he also tried it with bullfinches, chaffinches, nightingales, and skylarks, apparently, but they weren't. Particularly... Yeah, <laughs> they didn't. They didn't take off. 
I think if it was that easy to get nightingales to stick, then we wouldn't be in such dire straits with them now. Yeah, no, that's true. That is true. <laughs> I could have put them on my list as well. You only have five. Speaking of which... Bird number five. five. Number five is Songs Rush. Um, and this is a real home bird. This is a, re- this is a real kind of... Um, well, actually, my husband said, you can't, you can't not have Songs Rush on the list when mm-hmm. I was kind of bemoaning to him the other night when I was trying to work out what my five would be. So this is a kind of a sort of a talisman of, of home for us, really. Um, it's the fat sound of home on, on a spring morning and a, and a spring or summer evening that just warms my heart to hear and I think having having birds on your doorstep or that that you that you know and love and not just species but individuals is really important and I my son's nearly 10 and so he's he's grown up um you know we're fortunate in where we live there's there's a lot of wildlife um that he can see from his bedroom window but a bird like a song thrush you you can hear one from you know from from a bedroom window across the whole country so and it's one of the easy one, easiest ones to recognise as well, children. So um, children will, know, will learn robin probably first, maybe blackbird. But but for the, the sheer sort of um, the ease of picking out that 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 song, the songs rush so loud, so so repetitive. You know, the, the repeat is, is easy for for a child to hear um, and recognise. And so self-assured, there's something about them that is, is to me deeply reassuring because the bird itself sounds so confident in its ability to just you know this is this is the way things are this is this is my place um i am king of my castle and and all is well because because i'm here singing and it reminds me of, of the poem by ted hughes hawk roosting i don't know if you know know that yeah, it's uh, it's about the about i imagine a sparrow hawk roosting and and this bird is so so sure of its place in the world so it's written from the perspective of the hawk and the, and the last verse is the sun is behind me Nothing has changed since I began. My eye has permitted no change. I am going to keep everything like this. Just this sort of, um, and, and for me, the song thrush does that, has that sort of effect. Um, this sort of naive animal certainty that it is king of the world is brilliant, but also ironic in that our, our song thrush this summer was killed by a sparrow hawk, <laughs> um, which was all rather unfortunate, but very dramatic because we saw it happening. Um, and it was a young, young sparrowhawk that made a really bad job by targeting a, you know, a, a song thrush is a big, a big quarry for a sparrowhawk, particularly a young one. So it, it messed up this kill really badly, but but did it in the end. But that was the end of what we thought of as our song thrush. There will be another one. But yeah, that was all a bit ironic. But then that sparrowhawk, that same sparrowhawk got killed by a car in November. Uh-huh. So um, so that's the sparrowhawk that's in our freezer at the moment, waiting for a trip to the taxidermist. So I had this sort of circle of the the sparrowhawk, the, the, the song thrushes I loved was killed by the sparrowhawk. And then the sparrowhawk, which had, you know, thrush had become part of the sparrowhawk. And now the sparrowhawk has been killed by a car. But yeah, I loved them both. They both meant something to me, particularly probably in the light of that poem, that Ted Hughes poem, which I taught at school back in the 80s. And um, one of the few things from, from my English lessons that really stuck with me, just the idea that this bird could be so certain um, and make you feel that. Put song thrush on the list. It's a perfect reason, isn't it? That's something that you associate so much with home and your place in the world and, and family. And it's, it's a yeah, lovely thing to yeah. have that connection. Possibly a bit more traumatic when you see it plucked and sort of... It was grim. It was grim. Just, you know, because mainly because it wasn't a clean kill, you know, and, and we interrupted it by coming back from a walk just at the point where it was, it 
was all happening. And this Barrowhawk was just scratching and grabbing and mantling over this. We couldn't see what it was to begin with. And it was only when it flew off trying to carry this this huge prey that um, we realised what it was that it, it, had, it had managed to catch. Oh! And, uh, yeah, yeah. There was a bit, a bit of, oh. <laughs> These things, you know. Circle of life. Indeed, indeed. Absolutely. And it's we, now in your freezer. It's now in the freezer, yeah, yeah. And when that's beautifully uh, taxidermied, is taxidermied mm-hmm. a word? I don't know. Stuffed. <laughs> when it's stuffed yeah. in. Yeah, my son's already uh, already laid claim to it, so I think it'll it, get it, we'll get it stuffed and it can sit on his, his bookcase in his bedroom. If you're if you're a child growing up, I think there are worse things than having a sparrowhawk to be able to stroke. Absolutely, with that beady <laughs> eye, making sure you do yeah, your yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have nightmares. <laughs> well, Amy, there we have it. The five birds that you could not live without in our fictional, but sadly not ridiculous, environmental Armageddon. The five birds you would share the polluted, swollen waterways with as you dodge carcasses and discarded blue passports in your canoe, and not a mallard among them. But worse is yet to come. You must choose one of these five species to slug it out with my mighty peregrine in a frankly ridiculous and unfair battle royale finale judged purely by me. So, which bird will it be? Just horrific. It's like trying to choose one of your children. I've only got one child, so, you know, <laughs> partly to avoid any kind of any challenge like this. Oh, um, I am going to go with... Just because I know it's up against the peregrine, I'm going to go with Kingfisher. Ooh. I'm going to go with Kingfisher because this is a bird that is is basically plugged into the mains in terms of its energy and and its power on you know its its power on me. Um, and it's a ferocious predator as well. I mean, you know, make no mistake. It's- size for size, it's definitely got a bigger beak than a peregrine. You're, you're probably <laughs> right. And and in terms of it being a predator, you're, yeah, I, I mean, I'd never thought about it particularly like that, you know, in terms of it being a, a, a killing machine, you know. so Absolutely a killing machine. You know, I've been writing quite a lot about fish, you know, I wouldn't want to be not a nice way to go, beaten around the head <laughs> on a branch. I mean, you know, this is vicious stuff. As, I, as I'm finding, it, you know, the more people I chat to, I, I do find it's incredibly difficult to say that the peregrine is better than your favourite bird. And I think I might have to reconsider my format of this podcast <laughs> as time's going by. It, oh, it, peregrine could easily have been on my list as well. They're great birds in so many ways. But, you know, I think because of your connection to, to rivers, I think it would be churlish of me to say that the peregrine is best. So I will let <laughs> Kingfisher be this week's winner. The clue is in the name. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much for entertaining me on this silly idea been great fun thank you the the choosing was not fun that was that was torture but 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 lovely to chat to you so so tell us what you've got planned once things hopefully get a bit more normal Uh, well I've got a book to finish so um I have the the river book to finish um but then the book I finished earlier this year is is due out in September so um, hopefully there's a, there's a few things to do before then. Hopefully there'll be a bird fair again before before then. But uh, but yeah, the next book is called A Tree a Day. I don't know if you came across Dom Cousins' book this year of A Bird a Day. So it's yes. basically a, a sister book to that. 366 trees 
species and individual trees and, and, and stories about trees and bits of science about trees and art about trees. It's a, it's a book of everything and it's been really great fun to write. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought the list of 366 might be a bit of a challenge, but it was, it was easy to fill. <laughs> not, as, not as hard as five birds. No, no. And if, um, <laughs> yes, if I had to pick my favourite five trees, I'd have just as much trouble. I bet you would. Well, thanks again, Amy. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thanks very much for listening. And do join me again next week when my special guest will be naturalist and conservationist Nick Atchison. Until then, bye for now.